Please be seated. And uh, please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We're going to consider uh, the beginning of chapter 5, but uh, as we continue our exposition of the book, it seems good to go back and begin our reading at uh, chapter 4 and verse 14. And though we'll consider chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, I will read all the way to chapter 5, verse 6. So with that, to introduce where we are, uh, Hebrews 4, verse 14 is where we will pick up the reading. And please give your attention now once again to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God, inspired and infallible. Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins." And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word thus far. Let us pray for the preaching. Our Father... And our God, we rejoice to come before you now once again to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. And we thank you, Father, that our High Priest, who is our Good Shepherd, is indeed touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and that he has compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. And so, Father, we pray that the minister now who ministers for Christ would preach with compassion that he would have compassion on the ignorant and those going astray, and that you, O God, would be pleased to give the Spirit of the Lord to the preacher to preach in the power of the Holy Ghost. Otherwise, Father, these are just empty words. And we pray as well for the ears that will hear. Would you bless those who hear the word with the Spirit of the Lord, that we may truly receive them as the words of life, that Christ may increase in our souls this day, that we would better bless him Uh, from the heart. And so, Father, we pray again for the minister's voice, as it is not what it ought to be. But we thank you, Lord, that as the minister preaches, that it is the spirit of the Lord and not the minister's strength that makes the preaching effectual. And so now, Father, we pray that you would help your preacher glorify thy son, Jesus, that thy son also may glorify thee. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, our text continues a discourse that we began last time around, where our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And you heard that because of that, we are told not to fear, 
but to come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Beloved, what we heard is that we must never fear going to the Lord Jesus for mercy to cover our sin. When his word cuts us, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 12, when his word cuts us and convicts us of our sin, we must not fear to go to him for mercy. We must not fear either to go to him for grace, to persevere when we must obey him or endure our trials, because he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And as he feels for us, he calls us to take mercy and grace from him freely. For he is feeling towards us, beloved. And we saw that. It was such a rich meditation. He is feeling towards us and not indifferent. He is not indifferent then to our need for grace and mercy. But he is feeling towards us. He is not in heaven looking down his nose at us. How dare you need mercy and grace. But he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. There is divine compassion. And now the Apostle's argument to draw us to Jesus builds all the more, as he now says in chapter 5, that God's design, his function and design for the high priest's office was one of compassion. That God purposed to ordain compassionate men to draw us to God that we would receive mercy. Which we find supremely in the great high priest. Jesus Christ, Son of God. And that to remind us of where we were and where we are going, our theme is this, that Jesus was ordained a compassionate high priest for us so that we would draw near to him. That Jesus was ordained a compassionate high priest for us that we would draw near to him. And we'll consider that under two heads this afternoon. First is that Christ is a high priest ordained on behalf of men. And second, Christ is a high priest who is compassionate towards men. First, Christ, a high priest ordained on behalf of men. And the first verse of chapter 5 says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. This verse is extraordinarily rich. In so few words. So tonight we will spend most of our time mining it. And in it we find two matters (coughs) concerning high priests. First is the work of a high priest. And second, the qualifications of a high priest. So let's look at first the work of a high priest. Let's start with the fact, and let's not read too quickly over this, that they are ordained for men in things pertaining to God. That's really a beautiful phrase, friends. A beautiful phrase. And the Greek derives, or or, uh, drives rather, the sense that they are not ordained just for men, but on behalf of men. They are ordained on behalf of men, which is the meaning of the word for in the authorized version here. But the sense of advocacy in our English translation is just a little bit dull. They are ordained on behalf of men. To think that our trice holy God ordained the ministry of high priest on behalf of sinful men for the sake of men who deserve the everlasting wrath and damnation of God is a matter of great joy and praise, beloved. It really is. 
This is a gracious office given to sinful man by a gracious God. And again, you can use this text then to show that the law of Moses was part of a gracious covenant and not a covenant of works, isn't it? Because we are given advocates for us to God. And and this office for the sake of men, right, on the behalf of men, was for things pertaining to God. And so the high priest held a mediatorial office. Uh, In other words, boys and girls, he mediates between God and men, between God and sinners. And if a sinner is to go to God then, he must go through a priest who acts as a mediator between God and man. And the solemn truth is that none of us as sinners can directly go to God. To go to God directly will make you undone, even as the prophet Isaiah was in chapter 6 of Isaiah 6. And as God wants you to draw near to him, isn't this the interesting thing, Ren, right? That you see the office of high priest screams this truth. God wants sinful man to come to him. But sinful man cannot come to him without a high priest. And so he ordains this gracious office to that end, which he is in no way obligated to do. But the fact that he goes through the pains of putting an office in place that man might come to God shows you his desire that sinners come to God. And supremely so, of course, in the great high priest Jesus. And boys and girls, that's why all that we do, we say, is done through Christ. Because without Jesus, God is just a consuming fire to us. And he would devour us. So you must rejoice. And again, as we think of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is in me, that there is an office of high priest and that God gave his own son to be high priest, that we might be able to come to God and find blessing and eternal happiness in him. And that takes us to the work of the high priest. You hear it is to give offerings to God on our behalf. And our verse says he offers two things, gifts and sacrifices for sins. And these are two distinct offerings, as you might remember from the book of Leviticus. Let's start, though, with the offering we are most familiar with, the sacrifices for sins. You recall that the high priest offered bulls and goats, didn't he, to cover the sins of God's people. Leviticus 1, the very first chapter of the book, we find a burnt offering to atone for sin. Then in Leviticus 4, we find the sin offering. When any have unintentionally sinned, even the high priest would have to offer it for himself. We'll consider that in the next heading. But in Leviticus 4, we have this other offering for sin. And then in Leviticus 5 and 6, we find offerings for all kinds of things, such as sinful, careless vows we've taken, sins of ignorance, and so on. All of these are gracious provisions from God, friends. They are merciful provisions for sinners. They demonstrate the very heart of God, one who delights in mercy. We spent a little bit of time meditating on it in our prayers this morning. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Why? Because he delighteth in mercy. He delighteth in mercy. Is that phrase not worthy of an entire sermon? That we serve a God that delights in mercy. It is his joy 
to give mercy. And this is why you tie texts like this to say Luke 15, where there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents, because God delights to show mercy. And from this then, we find that the priesthood derives its source from the very nature of God. The priesthood's work and office is a work of mercy. And as for our great high priest Jesus, his person and his offering are both superior to the Levitical high priests. For not only is he God in the flesh, showing us that, isn't this interesting, he takes on the office of priest himself, showing truly that God delights in mercy. So much so to take on the office and discharge it himself that he would become the great high priest to give us a ministry of mercy. But not only that, but the Son of God, he not only is the superior priest in his person, he offers the superior sacrifice, which is himself. Now how can anyone deny that God delights in mercy when he is willing to come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ God and man, that he may offer himself in the human nature to God in order to give us mercy. The Lamb of God come in the flesh to take away the sin of the world, both our great high priest and sacrifice. Later on, Hebrews 9, 13, 14 will say, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He offered himself. He offered himself. Child of God, do you need any greater proof that God delights in mercy than that? And because of that, he saves to the uttermost, is what Hebrews 9 says. A perfect high priest and a perfect sacrifice for sin. And so, we'll cover this in more detail as the book unfolds. The need for sacrifices ends when Jesus Christ cried, It is finished, on the cross at Calvary. And then raising, being raised from the dead to the right hand of God, he now rules the world, Hebrews 10, 12-14. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever... See, that puts an end to all of the, uh, the sacrifices. He sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is the great high priest. His offering for sin perfected his people forever. That is our gospel hope. We did not perfect ourselves. But Jesus Christ in offering himself once as a sacrifice for sins forever, pardoned our sins forever. And as far as east is from the west, those of us who have faith in Christ have had our sins taken away forever. And so what we must remember is there is no atonement for sins outside of this merciful mediatorial office Christ holds. And here's the inducement to come to him, beloved. Whatever sins you have committed, commit them to Jesus and they are freely pardoned by him. Remember again, he delighteth in mercy. And that must cause you to go to him straight away when you sin. Then the second work of offering, and this is one that we are usually not so familiar with, is that the high priest offers gifts. These are what you might know better in Leviticus as the free will offerings. These are not offerings to cover our sin, but given in thanksgiving to the Lord 
or in service to the Lord. For instance, one such offering was the grain, or in the King James, meat offering of Leviticus 2.1, which says, when any will offer a meat or grain offering unto the Lord, so on. They're called free will offerings because um, God says, when any will offer. You know, in other words, they're not mandatory. They're not prescribed for certain days and seasons. They are free will offerings. And what is translated in the King James as meat or grain offering is really the same word in our text of gift. And so the apostle is deliberately drawing our attention to the free will offerings of the Levitical priesthood. And they were what the people would offer from the heart. Whatever they purposed, they would give to the Lord freely. And it's meant to be a recognition of the Lord's grace and mercy to them. Never for the forgiveness of sins, but out of a recognition that God has been merciful to me, the sinner. And they were the sign of consecration to the Lord out of a heart of gratitude to freely return to the Lord as they have freely received grace. And I will say this is a forgotten aspect of the priesthood service. They mediated gifts to God from worshipers who consecrated themselves out of love. That's noteworthy. It shows you such gifts cannot be given to God directly. This is vitally important for us today. Because though the, the, obviously the gift offering of Levites are gone, their equivalents are found all throughout, all throughout the New Testament. Because the Bible tells us to offer sacrifices of praise, obedience, and charity. For instance, none of these cover our sins. None of these gain us any merit with the Lord. But as with the free will offerings, they express the saved soul's gratitude to God. Consider our sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13, 15. By him, therefore, do you see that? There's that language of mediation. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Then consider our sacrifice of obedience, Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Our obedience to the Lord is an offering that we are called to still give to the Lord today. And what about our giving of charity to those in need? Hebrews 13.16. But to do good and to communicate or share Forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So how do you put these things together then, friends? All your service, all your service to God must be mediated by Jesus, the great high priest. It is his work and his work alone to lift up your service to the Lord and make it acceptable to God. All of it, beloved, in your worship, in your service, whatever you do to the glory of God, you must bring Jesus into it or it is done in vain. You know that all of our sinfulness pollutes every one of our works. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 says. And yet on the other hand, Scripture says, know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. And so I want to tell you, unbeliever, especially if you think you have done good for God's sake outside of Christ, you have not. 
There is nothing you can do to gain merit or favor or any uh, 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 smiling from God to you outside of Christ. None at all. God won't accept it outside of Jesus presenting it to you, for you and lifting it up to God. And since no one is good, not one, you must go through Jesus to even serve God acceptably. And what a thing it is for us who serve the Lord then. What an inducement that is to remember and never forget that all of our service must be done in Christ. If we don't bring Christ into it, our worship is in vain. If we don't bring Christ into it, our good works are in vain. All of it must be done through Christ and for the glory of Christ. But if our service is done for Christ, according to the word of God, and done invoking Christ and depending on him, then it could never be done in vain, could it? Why? Because God is pleased in Christ. And so all of our labor, all of our service, even if we don't see any fruit from it, he is pleased with. For this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And everything he offers up to God, God is pleased with. And so remember that. And if you feel frustrated in some way in your service to the Lord, maybe you need to recapture this truth and do all through Christ. And so having seen the high priest's gracious work, Let's second consider his qualifications. There are two here. He is taken from among men, and second, he is ordained for men. So the first qualification, he is to be taken from among men. Exodus 21, uh, 28.1 taught this. Take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So among our brothers, a priest is to be taken. The high priest is meant to be a man, not an angel, not an angel, friends, or any other creature. And he must be taken from among us. He must share in our nature as a man. He must be someone we would feel comfortable going to, not alien or otherworldly. Someone that can sympathize with us and have compassion on us, as we will see in the next heading. Something a holy angel could never do. You know, we come out of a discourse where he's talking about Christ's superiority to the angels. He, he, the, the priest could never be an angel. They are far stronger than us. They are ministering spirits, but they are not flesh and blood like us. They are not like us, friends. They don't tire like us. They have a far greater capacity for knowledge. They don't weep. We have no record of them weeping. All those things that we heard about Jesus' humanity last time, they do not share with us like Jesus does. And you know that thread has been woven throughout Hebrews since the second chapter. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call us brethren. A remarkable thing, friends. And so, child of God, The God that delights in mercy shows us again he delights in mercy because he ordained that we would have a fellow man that we might feel comfortable going to that would be as a brother to us. I want you to do a thought experiment here. Could you imagine what it would be like after you sin? It's hard enough, I know, in the flesh. But after you sin, with all of your uncleanness, to go to a holy angel, you would be in terror 
friends. They cause men to tremble, the best of men. You remember in Luke 1.12, when the angel appeared to Zacharias, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Could you imagine if God gave you that kind of creature to be your mediator? You would never go. You would always fear. Imagine that, now, now imagine in your sin and your uncleanness. Could you imagine going to God himself? Impossible. You would never go. You would say with Isaiah, Woe is unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among an unclean people. And you would be undone. You would die in your sin, friends. And so, what does God do? Merciful God appoints a fellow man, one who is touched with the feeling of your infirmities, one that can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going out of the way. And I'll give more on that later in the next heading. The second qualification is he must be ordained to the work. Boys and girls, that means he must be appointed to the office. This is not an office a man can take for himself. In 1 Chronicles 23.13, we are reminded of the appointment of God. The sons of Amram, Aaron and Moses, and Aaron was separated that he should sanctify the most holy things. He and his sons forever to burn incense before the Lord, to minister unto him, and to bless in his name forever. Verse 4 adds... Um, Here in chapter 5 of Hebrews, um, it it adds, uh, oh no, verse 4, yes, uh, adds, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. The high priest had to be appointed to his work. That is meant to give you confidence, friends, in the ministry being undertaken. One of the things that in this day of looseness in, in the church, generally speaking, not in all circles, but generally speaking, is that when we go through the one appointed to the office officially to intercede for us, that as the priest in the Old Testament was appointed by God, we have every expectation that God will hear and God will bless because the man is ordained to the work. And of course then, how we rejoice in so many ways the scriptures show that Jesus Christ was ordained our great high priest by God. At his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the same manner of words coming to us that we would know that Jesus Christ is appointed. And that is the argument in verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. The argument is very simple. You can have utter confidence in Christ because God appointed him to be our high priest. And so we have no, no, no um, warrant whatsoever to doubt the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that is why he saves to the uttermost those who come to him. Because God appointed him for that work. And he is not an usurper. He did not come on the scene and just make claims about himself. But God testifies that this is the great high priest for his people. And so then anytime you go to him, you know God will will certainly bless you and certainly forgive you. And that is why we rest in Christ's work. Now, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I think it's important for today as I alluded to. There's no more priesthood today. Christ is our great high priest. And I am not a priest 
and neither are your elders. We are not men ordained to that kind of office. But ordination continues today. Acts 14.23, we heard it this morning, when they had ordained them elders in every church. What I want to briefly say is this. Flee any ministry by an unordained man. Or those who exercise aspects of ordained office, preaching, shepherding, sacraments, without a call, without being sent, sent through the church of Jesus Christ. Listen again. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God. This is important for us in this day and age. And every man in office must only do what his office appertains to. King Saul found out what happens when a king tries to take on the prerogatives of the office of priest. There's a lot of confusion today in men who think they are in ministry of some kind, but have never been called of God to it through ordination. But you think of this. Christ himself would not take on an office without being ordained. Isn't that the most extraordinary thing? That Christ himself would not take on this office himself. Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. If the Son of God will not do it, we must not either. But again, because Christ was ordained, we rest in his work, knowing God approves of it. So, having seen that the high priest was appointed on behalf of men, let us lastly consider Christ as a high priest compassionate towards men. And again, we have to begin here with the idea that God is merciful when we consider this head, that he delighteth in mercy, and so he appointed one who would be compassionate towards us, that we would be drawn towards the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. You hear in verse 2 that as the high priest is taken from among men, he can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. What we find is the idea of the very essence of the office of high priest, that the one ordained to be high priest must be compassionate towards men. Why? The text here says the high priest is one who is compassed with our infirmities himself. And I remember the first time that it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I was studying the book for a class in the seminary, and I was working on my outline of it as I outlined many books in the, of the Bible. And it arrested me. It really arrested me when I contemplated God's design and intention for the high priest. That he so desires to show mercy to sinners, he appointed men to have compassion on sinners. To take their own experience of their own infirmities. To not exercise self-righteousness and contempt towards sinners, but compassion instead. Isn't that a remarkable thing? It really did at least stagger me. That is why God in Isaiah 65.5 condemns the self-righteous, those which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. That is the very opposite of the nature of the high priest. It's why our Lord condemned the Pharisees with great woes, because they were meant, they weren't priests obviously, right? But they were meant to be compassionate on the ignorant and them that are out of the way, instead of turning up their noses at them, they were meant to draw them to God to freely find mercy in the Lord. So you think of what this means. The high priest was to have his heart touched when he saw sinners sinning. 
And with compassion, he was to beckon them to the Lord. Come, come to the Lord, repent, be forgiven. Let us offer the sacrifice that God asks for. And he gave them offerings to cover their sin. Consider the kinds that he was to have compassion on. The text gives you two classes. The ignorant, first and second, them that are out of the way. So first, the ignorant. And in this, what you have to remember always, friends, is ignorance of the will and law of God is a sin. No man can plead ignorance of God's law. When we were first created in God's image, boys and girls, you've memorized this in the catechism probably, that you were created with the knowledge of God, right, before we fell. And the fall, of course, caused sin to mar and deface that knowledge. But all men have the residue of it, the work of the law written in our hearts in Romans 2.15. But that said, ignorance of the commandments, ignorance of sin itself, ignorance of the will of God is sin. Leviticus 4.2 says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do against any of them, etc., etc. Beloved, there is no excuse for any of us to not know the will of God through the word. Ignorance is a sin. We cannot be ignorant of the mind of God. And you yourself must must learn more and more of it. There are many Christians who do not realize they are sinning in ignorance. We must take heed of this word and realize that ignorance of God's ways is a sin. Yes, we are very thankful, aren't we though, that there is mercy given. But you must freely take it. You must freely take it when you realize your ignorance. You must freely take it, especially if you are living in ignorance and have no desire to open the word and to find out what the will of God is. And so then, I suppose, as with those high priests, out of compassion, I plead with you now, do not remain ignorant of the scriptures. Boys and girls especially, learn today to constantly, with delight, go into the word of God and learn more of God and God's ways. Learn more of the will and mind of God. If you don't know who your God is, you are sinning in ignorance as well against him when you don't know who he truly is. And we rejoice that it is the work of Christ even to restore the knowledge of God in us. Colossians 3.10 says, We have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. What a glorious thing that Christ supplies all of our, our, our lack, doesn't he? Everything we lack is in Christ. By his spirit and through the word of God, we can be renewed. Oh, that we would think on our ignorance of God and think of it even as Joseph said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Ignorance, friends, of a glorious God is perhaps one of the worst sins of all because he is so glorious and meant to be known. His glory should be known by you because he is worthy of being known. And you will be blessed if you come to him in Christ, as you know more of him. Uh, How many of you before today actually knew that he delighteth in mercy? What a thing to not know of your God. But it is there for you to know this. Learn the mind and will of God from the scripture and trustworthy guides. And then... Not just find out more about the commandments, and this is also key, but ask the Lord to reveal sins that you have committed out of ignorance. 
then repent of those too. In Numbers 15, 24 through 29, there is atonement made for the people who sinned ignorantly, that they would be forgiven of it when they recognize it. For instance, and if any soul sin through ignorance, then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for the soul that sinneth ignorantly, when he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord, to make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. We must have our hearts opened before the Lord for the very reason that he is willing to show this kind of mercy in Christ. I understand, beloved, it is often a very, very hard thing on us to open up our hearts before God, asking him to reveal our secret sins. Friends, but David asked in Psalm 19.12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. It's a hard thing, yes, but what you are meant to take away from this text is you have a compassionate high priest who can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. You constantly must pray, though, reveal my ignorance, Lord, and show me how I sin against you, even if I don't know that I am sinning, and forgive me, cleanse me from my secret sinful faults. Child of God, you have seen here that he delights in mercy and he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. So don't let your pride keep you from him. Do not let shame keep you from him. Yes, be shamed that we sin. I I mourn my sin, but I must not be so ashamed of it that I won't go to Christ. He says there is plenteous mercy even for us sinners. Don't let shame keep you from him. And the second class they were to have compassion on are them that are out of the way. And Leviticus 5, 6 through 7 speaks of the trespass offering that this is a reference to. This is when you have departed from the good way, from the narrow path, and you have trespassed the commandments of God. Usually in your experience, you will fall into this when you fall prey to temptation. This is not a sin of ignorance. You know I shouldn't do this. And you fall prey to temptation and you sin. And you seek repentance and mercy. And what you find here is the Lord provides forgiveness for you. And the high priest is to show compassion on you when you sin in that way. What is this designed to do in us then, to know this? For sinners like us, it is meant to draw us irresistibly. Irresistibly draw us to what grace? The grace of repentance. That the heart of heaven is open to us to come for clemency and mercy. Again, I'll say it. This is not cold, dispassionate grace. Well, I guess you sinned again, and here I will reluctantly give you grace. That is not what God is communicating in this text, is he? But grace that has come out of a compassionate heart that is touched with feeling. It is a heart that out of the Spirit of Christ now in this text is calling you to come and take mercy for yourself. Whenever you sin, repent of it and turn to the Lord for free, unmerited grace. There is pity in Christ for all of his elect children. If we would know that, how much more so would we flee to the throne of grace? Unbeliever, If you've never heard this about Christ, come to Christ. He is very compassionate towards sinners. When the Pharisee said, stay away from me for I'm holier than thou. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, dined with sinners. 
that they would come and receive mercy. Do not be too ashamed of your sins to go to God for mercy through Christ. And so, again, we hear that the high priests were men compassed with infirmities for the very purpose that they would have compassion on sinners. Now, when we make our connection to Christ, we need to understand something here, that the essence of the office is that the man have compassion. But what is not essential to the office is that the high priest must sin. Because Jesus Christ, uh, as we saw in Hebrews 4.15, said, is without sin. But in verse 3, it said that the whole high, old high priests, in chapter 5, verse 3, the old high priests had to offer for their own sin. So what you need to understand is, and maybe this has created a, um, a sense of discordance in your mind, Jesus Christ, being sinless, does not need to have sinned to have compassion on us. And sometimes that's hard for us. But truly believe this child of God. He has compassion on you, though he never once sinned. You already heard him suffering temptation as a man is enough for his heart to go out to us. And we remember again, we forget this, as though Christ himself doesn't know such things. He knows that we are weaker than him. See that, friends. He knows that we are weaker than him. We struggle with original sin and a corrupt nature. We have no hypostatic union. He knows. Don't you think he knows? He knows this. And that produces greater pity in him than if he had sinned, beloved. So do not imagine that Jesus cannot be compassionate towards you because he never sinned. And you remember he was indeed compassed with the infirmities of our human nature in every other way but having a sin nature. I'll remind you again, because we forget so quickly. He experienced the weakness of our human nature, its finitude, its limitations. He experienced tiredness, hunger, thirst. He needed strength from an angel in Gethsemane before he went to the cross. He had to be strengthened. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? He experienced the grief and misery of this fallen world in soul and body. He felt the hostility or contradiction of sinners that assaulted him and temptations from Satan himself. And he is touched with feeling and compassion for us. And he willingly undertook the office of high priest to have compassion in his human nature so that God might call us to come near to him through his sympathetic humanity. That you would have a brother that knows you well and can condescend to your limits. When you need repentance, when you need forgiveness, will you remember, child of God, that he is compassionate? The use of this doctrine, once again, if you take nothing else from the sermon, the use of this doctrine is once again that Christ is inviting you to come. In every possible way, what more does he have to say to you? He has said he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He has said that he has compassion on you. What more do you need, child of God? The only thing, again, I'll repeat what I said last Lord's Day. The only thing that is standing in the way of you coming to Christ is yourself. Well, this has, and I'll substantially close with this. This has application to Christ's ministers and elders today. If Christ has compassion on the ignorant and those who are out of the way, so must we be. 
Think on the qualifications of an elder now after hearing the priest's compassion. 1 Timothy 2.24-25 And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. For us who have received mercy from Christ's compassion, for our ignorance and our waywardness, we must also exercise compassion to those who are ignorant and out of the way. That sinners might repent and be reconciled to God through Christ. It is a terrible elder who has a facade of self-righteousness about him that says to sinners, I cannot imagine how you could ever do such a thing. Again, that is why we don't have angels at the pulpit, but we have men who are compassed with the feeling of our infirmities and have compassion or are meant to have compassion on us. That they would humbly go and seek out the lost. That they would go find the one sinner and leave the 99 behind. That they would go and and seek out not the righteous, but those who have need of the great physician. And it is the heart of Christ then must be manifest in ministers and elders today. And yes, while that has direct heightened application for God's servants in ordained office, all of you must be the same way. All of you must have compassion on those ignorant and out of the way. Well, brethren, how thankful we are in the design of the scripture, right? As we began this discourse in chapter 4, verse 12, and the word of God cuts us and exposes and discerns our thoughts and intentions of the heart, that here is straight away a compassionate high priest in the heavens to receive us when God exposes us. And so I'll just ask, are you regularly going to him? Have you forgotten that his compassions fail not? Have you forgotten that he still invites sinners to come to him? Believer, when you are too ashamed to go to him for forgiveness, do you think he died for you and then his compassion vanished away? No, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the compassionate heart of Jesus found on the cross still beats in heaven for his people. The location of the Lord has changed. He is now glorified, but his character It never has changed and it never will change, for he is the same eternally. God has ordained this Jesus to receive sinners to the throne of grace. And if he offered himself as a sacrifice for your sin, is it now too much for him to receive your repentance? No. So again, boldly go to Christ in faith, beloved, remembering He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That is God's great promise for you in Jesus Christ if you believe. May he give you the grace to believe it and embrace it. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. And let us now go to our compassionate high priest. Father and our God, an eternity will be too short to bless you and praise you for giving us Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you would cause us to to bless you and praise you through Jesus, 
that you would accept our, our, our praise of you for Christ, through Christ, and that he would make our praise to you worthy of being received. We thank you that as you have ordained him to that office, that our praises of you, our service of you, our very lives are acceptable in your sight. And so, Father, help us to always draw near to your throne of grace through our compassionate great high priest. Oh, Father, we pray if any here have never taken Christ for themselves, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would see that there is, there is no sin too bleak or dark that Christ cannot uh, forgive them of, and that his heart is truly compassionate towards sinners who are ignorant and out of the way. We thank you for Christ and help us to embrace him and go to him for uh, mercy and grace whenever we have need of him. We ask this for his sake. Amen.